0: And now hear the word of God from Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure, but surely this also is vapor. I said of laughter, madness, and of mirth, what does it accomplish? I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine while guiding my heart with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the sons of men to do under heaven all the days of their lives. I made my works great, I built myself houses and planted myself vineyards. I made myself gardens and orchards, I planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made myself water pools from which to water the growing trees of the grove. I acquired male and female servants and had servants born in my house. Yes, I had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all who were in Jerusalem before me. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the special treasures of kings and of Provinces, I acquired male and female singers, the delights of the sons of men and musical instruments of all kinds. So I became great and excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my reward from all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled And indeed, all was vapor and shepherding the wind. There was no profit under the sun. Then I turned myself to consider wisdom. What madness and folly? For what can the man do who succeeds the king? Only what he has already done. Then I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Yet I myself perceived that the same event happens to them all. So I said in my heart, As it happens to the fool, it also happens to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart, this also is vapor. For there is no more remembrance of the wise than of the fool forever, since all that now is will be forgotten in the days to come. And how does a wise man die as the fool? Therefore I hated life because the work that was done under the sun was distressing to me for all is vapor and shepherding the wind. Then I hated all my labor in which I had toiled under the sun because I must leave it to the man who will come after me and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool yet he will rule over all my labor in which I toiled and in which I have shown myself wise under the sun. This also is vapor. Therefore I turned my heart And despaired of all the labor in which I had toiled under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is with wisdom, knowledge, and skill. Yet he must leave his heritage to a man who has not labored for it. This also is vapor and a great evil. For what has man for all his labor and for the striving of his heart with which he has toiled under the sun? For all his days are sorrowful and his work burdensome. Even in the night his heart takes no rest. This also is vapor Nothing is better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who can have enjoyment more than I? For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to a man who is good in his sight, but to the sinner he gives the work of gathering and collecting that he may give to him who is good before God. This also is vapor and shepherding the wind. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Uh, Obviously today is a big day for Larson and David and Jason, uh, as they are now elders in Christ's church. It's also a very important day in the life of Trinity Reformed Church, as you now have a session of your own uh, session. That is the Presbyterian term for the group of elders who oversee the church. Uh, Theologians will talk about uh, Christ's ascension and then his session. He ascends to the right hand of the Father, and then he is seated there. That being seated at the right hand of the Father, that is his session. That's the old-fashioned word for it. Uh, So the word session means to sit in rule. And the idea in calling the group of elders a session is that they are representatives of Christ's rule, over his people. Their session is to be a mirror of Christ's session. Now, in our egalitarian age, we don't like to hear much about authority. In fact, we tend to romanticize rebellion against authority. Uh, We so easily forget that the first rebel against authority was none other than Satan himself. Uh, Authority, actually, if if we look at this biblically, authority is good and necessary. Godly and God-ordained authority figures are necessary for human thriving and human flourishing in every area of life. So husbands have authority. Moms and dads have authority. Civil magistrates have authority. And yes, elders have authorities. Now, all of these authorities are limited. They're tied to a particular sphere or institution in which the authority operates, And of course, these authorities are all accountable to God, but they are real authorities. Yes, it is true, authority can be abused. Uh, Many times, authority is used for evil purposes. But God's design is to establish authorities in various areas of life for our good. Everybody knows authority can be abused. But today, many believe authority itself is abusive that the very fact that some have authority that others do not is intrinsically abusive, and that's just not true. God's design for family, society, and church includes what we could call hierarchical relationships, what in our catechism they call relationships between inferiors and superiors. These relationships of authority are God-ordained and God-designed, and they are for our good. Now, of course, it is crucial for those in authority to exercise leadership and to rule in wisdom, to rule in a wise way, to lead in a wise way. And scripture is full of teaching on leadership. We might think of books like Ezra and Nehemiah, where these men lead Israel in rebuilding the city and the wall and the temple after they had all been destroyed. Or we might think of the pastoral epistles where Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus, specifically guiding these men as they are pastors, as they are shepherds in Christ's church, explaining to them, showing them how they are to lead and rule and teach a congregation. But perhaps the most comprehensive leadership manual in all of Scripture is the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom for leaders. In fact, it's interesting. Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, they're right next to each other in our Bibles, and they really do form a pair. Both are authored, obviously, by Solomon. They come to us from the hand of Solomon, uh, who wrote or at least compiled everything we find in these two books. And Proverbs and Ecclesiastes really do complement one another. In fact, you could say they're really sequential. As we move from Proverbs to Ecclesiastes, we move from simple forms of wisdom to more complex forms of wisdom. So Ecclesiastes presupposes Proverbs and builds upon it. Proverbs is wisdom for a young man. Ecclesiastes is wisdom for a mature man. Proverbs is a father imparting wisdom to his son, but because the father is the king, his son is the prince. And so you could say Proverbs is preparing the prince for his future reign, cultivating the wisdom he will need once he enters into that office, once he is coronated as king. Ecclesiastes is full of wise reflections on what it's like to rule as a king, wise meditations on what it's like to actually be in a position of leadership and rule. So you've got Proverbs for the young man, Ecclesiastes for the old man, Proverbs for the prince, Ecclesiastes for the king, Proverbs, preparation for the rule in the future, Ecclesiastes, an exploration of what it's like to be in a position of rule now. A great deal of the wisdom we find in Ecclesiastes, as you might expect, is political. So for example, you go to chapters 8 and 9, you'll find there's a great deal of wisdom there about various matters of state, things like Crime and punishment, uh, wisdom for uh, life within a royal court, that sort of thing. But a great deal of the wisdom in Ecclesiastes applies much more broadly. Uh, Anyone in any position of leadership can benefit from it. In fact, it's very interesting, the name of the book Ecclesiastes, that's actually from a Greek word, uh, Ekklesia, uh, which you may know in the New Testament is translated usually as church, or it could be translated as assembly. Solomon is the great ecclesiastic in Israel. He's the great convener of the assembly, the one who gathers the people, who assembles the people for teaching and for feasting. And so as king, he is shepherd of the flock of Israel. He has a pastoral role among the people. In fact, 2 Samuel 5, among other passages, indicates that the king in Israel would rule them as a shepherd, as a shepherd in Israel. And so, Larson, David, and Jason, today you guys have become the shepherds of TRC. So you can learn from Solomon's wisdom here. And indeed, the whole congregation, all of you can benefit from this wisdom that Solomon imparts because shepherds and sheep alike must grow in wisdom. And shepherds and sheep alike need to understand something of how shepherding works. Solomon needed wisdom to shepherd the flock of Israel, so he shared his wisdom with the flock of Israel, and today he will share his wisdom with us as well. Now, I read from uh, Ecclesiastes chapter two, and really here we are dipping into an argument that is already underway, but I can catch you up to speed, uh, I think, pretty easily. I want to focus on chapter two because it's so directly relevant to the work of shepherding. This is really in a way what it's about. In this section of the book Solomon is exploring different areas of life to see what he can learn from them, uh, what wisdom they have to offer. He's, He's using his own wisdom to explore these different areas of life to see how they might enhance his wisdom or what, as he wisely reflects on them, what he can learn about leadership or shepherding from them. Now you have to understand, remember who Solomon is, uh, he is granted this special gift of of knowing good and evil, this special gift of discernment, of wisdom. Uh, and Solomon was what what we might call a real renaissance man. Uh, his wisdom was not some ethereal, otherworldly kind of knowledge; rather, it was practical, earthy, and social, as wisdom always is in the scriptures. What is wisdom? I think he could summarize it this way: Wisdom is the art of living in accord with God's design. Wisdom is the art of living in accord with God's design, which fuses together now the patterns of creation and redemption. Wisdom is recognizing those patterns that God has built into creation, that now he's built into redemption, into the gospel, and it's living in accord with those patterns, recognizing those patterns, recognizing how those patterns reflect God's design for human life. Wisdom means understanding how God's world works. Uh, how humans work. Uh, Wisdom is mastering whatever facet of the creation God has entrusted to you. It's being able to make finely tuned judgments, not just being able to tell black from white, because anybody should be able to do that, but even being able to tell white from off-white. That's the, the, the role of the wise man. He can play that kind of judge. He can make these finely tuned judgments with skill. And Solomon himself obviously had a very wide-ranging knowledge of the world. He could write music and poetry. He knew about plants and animals. He was a very astute observer of human nature, including the dynamics between men and women. He understood law and politics, architecture and construction. He knew how to make keen decisions and wise judgments. Solomon possesses this multifaceted wisdom. And I think he writes Ecclesiastes at the height of his reign before his fall into sin. He does tumble into terrible sin. Uh, But I think he writes Ecclesiastes at the height of his wisdom. This is Solomon at his best, uh, at that most glorious moment at the peak of his reign. And in chapter 2, he is using his wisdom to investigate and test out different aspects of life to see what they might have to offer and what their limits are. And so he tests pleasure and laughter in verses one and two, and he finds that while there's something valuable in them, they are vaporous. They're good, but they do not last. There's something wonderful about laughter. A leader has to be able to laugh and even laugh at himself, but uh, laughter and and pleasure or mirth do not hold the key to all of life and uh, do not hold the key to leadership. Verse 3, he tests out wine, and again, while wine is good and gladdens man's heart, it cannot solve the mysteries of life, it cannot solve the mysteries of leadership. Sure, the king may want to enjoy uh, a glass of wine after a hard day's work, uh, after a a hard day of shepherding the sheep, so to speak, but that's not going to solve anything for him. Then in verses 4 through 11, we find something really interesting, and here's where we really start to get into it. He describes his great building project, and I believe this is best understood as a description of the temple. Solomon performed a hugely sacrificial and heroic role in Israel in constructing the temple. You can't even fathom how great this building project is. The temple was really like a new Eden. And that's how it's described here, a garden with water pools, with herds and flocks, which will, of course, be for sacrifice. He's got gold and silver and other treasures, which if you read about the the things in Solomon's tabernacle, you see how all these things were put to use, the gold and the silver and the the other great treasures. This is a great architectural work. Uh, He's also got singers there. Uh, The temple was central to Israel's developing musical culture. So Solomon has assembled male and female singers along with a wide variety of different kinds of musical instruments. And Solomon is overseeing all of this, and he does so in great wisdom. As a shepherd in Israel, he constructs the temple, and he fills it with glory, visual glory and audible glory. Now, we could say elders of the church are involved in a similar project, an analogous work that takes an analogous set of skills and requires an analogous kind of sacrifice. Shepherding the the church, in a way, you could say, is is sacrificial work, much as Solomon's work of building the tabernacle was. Solomon oversaw a temple-building project, with sacrifice and music at the heart of it. That's what he describes here. And so it is with the elders, with the elders of uh, of the church, because the church is now God's temple, and elders oversee its construction. And the church temple, the New Testament again and again describes the church as the temple, so this is no stretch. The church, as God's temple, is centered on sacrificial worship, obviously not now the sacrifice of animals, but the sacrifice of praise the fruit of lips that confess God's name, that give him thanks. And yes, there is music with instruments and male and female singers at the heart of the church's life too, all of this being overseen by the elders. So you could say elders have a Solomonic task, a Solomonic-like task, and so they need Solomonic-like wisdom. Solomon built the temple, elders build the temple of the church, and there is this Connection. Elders like Solomon are temple builders. Or we could actually put it this way. What was Solomon doing in building the temple? He's really renewing Israel's culture and really creating a new culture in Israel that will be centered around this temple. It's a, it's a huge step forward in Israel's glory and maturation. What do leaders do? Leaders build cultures. If you are a leader in any institution, but certainly in the church, you are responsible for developing and shaping and molding the culture of that institution in accord with God's design for it. Solomon shepherded the culture of Israel. Elders shepherd the culture of the church. And of course, we can talk about all the different things this requires. Building culture effectively requires sacrifice, service, and and skill. Solomon displayed all of those things in building the temple. Elders who are going to build a church, build a church full of glory, analogous to Solomon's temple, must have sacrifice, service, and skills. Of course, one way of sort of summarizing what all that means is to talk about character. And, And at least at this point in his life, Solomon was a man of great character. And it's important for leaders to understand people don't follow titles, they follow character. People don't follow titles in the end. They might for a while, but not in the the long run. People don't follow titles. They follow character and competence and courage. And so Larson, David, and Jason, understand the people here are not going to follow you just because you have elder next to your name now. It's not that simple. They will follow you as they trust your God-given wisdom, as they see you making sacrifices and taking responsibility for the community. Now, Solomon had that, then he lost it, and it brought great disaster upon the people of Israel. Uh, But I think Solomon in his prime understood this. In fact, I think Solomon in his prime would have uh, approved of how C.S. Lewis describes kingship in Narnia in The Horse and His Boy. So many good lessons about authority, about rule, about leadership in The Horse and His Boy. It's it's an overlooked book in the Chronicles of Narnia series, but it's really one of my very favorites. Uh, How is Narnian kingship described there? Well, King Loon tells his son, who's wanted to wiggle his way out of his royal responsibilities. Uh, King Loon tells his son, quote, this is what it means to be king, to be first in every desperate attack, and last out in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as there must be every now and then, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. That's right. That is leadership. First in, last out, laughing in the face of danger. That's leadership. That's what it looks like. Leading the way in sacrifice and service. That's what it takes to build the church, to build this kind of church culture that scripture calls us to. Now, focus again. Let's refocus on Ecclesiastes 2. Notice here in this text how Solomon, this great leader, a leader who exercises authority, who takes on the burdens of responsibility for the community, look at how he describes his work, verses 10 and 11. He rejoices in his labor. He even sees his labor as a reward. And every good leader knows this. The reward for a job well done is another job. That's how it works. You do the work. You get it done. What's your reward? More work. Work is rewarded with more work. And Solomon sees this and even embraces this as a great joy. But then he analyzes his work as a shepherd further. He says, when I looked on all the works that my hands had done and on the labor in which I had toiled, it was all vapor and shepherding the wind, and there was no profit under the sun. See, where is Solomon going with this now? Well, this uh, work that Solomon has continued to take on has led him to contemplate the limits of wisdom. And that's where he goes in the next several verses. Yes, he says, wisdom has value. Wisdom has great value, but its value is limited. Why is it limited? Well, one reason it's limited is because the wise man, like the fool, faces death. The wise man's wisdom does not allow him to overcome death. His wisdom does not allow him to cheat death. Not only does the wise man succumb to death, as Solomon says, his wisdom is no guarantee of what will come after his death, no guarantee that his successors will be wise. Somebody may come along after you and wreck everything you've invested your life in building. You see that in verses 18, 19, and 21, where Solomon contemplates the future. What will things be like after he's gone? And actually, that's exactly what happened. Solomon himself, of course, had already started to make a mess of things. But then his successor, Rehoboam, Uh, is such a disastrous leader, it splits the kingdom, it splits the nation. He couldn't hold the nation together because he uh, was so arrogant, so tyrannical. So yes, Solomon is right. Your wisdom as a leader, even Solomonic-like wisdom, is no guarantee that your legacy will be maintained after you're dead and gone. One may come after you who wrecks everything you've invested your life in building. And so in verse 20, Solomon seems to despair over his labor and his toil under the sun. Previously in this passage, he's rejoiced in that labor and even the additional labor that success in labor brings. But now you sense some kind of despair over his labor and his toil under the sun. Has all of his shepherding work been in vain? Will all his work as a shepherd and a leader amount to anything in the long run? And again, this is something every leader has to contemplate about his place. You can pour your heart out for the people. You can pour your life out for the institution to build something. You can do the burdensome work, as he calls it in verse 23. But it is all vapor. And that may sound somewhat pessimistic. Uh, bear with me here. This is not Solomon's final, final conclusion. We're going to come to that in verses 24 and 26, and there Solomon uh, shows us the light at the end of the tunnel. He, uh, he, he, he shows us that there is hope, uh, and, and there are reasons for God's people to remain hopeful. But this is a provisional conclusion he reaches along the way, and it's important because every leader, really in every domain, in the church, and in politics, in every sphere, every leader is going to go through what Solomon experiences here. You're going to realize all of your leadership is vaporous. It's all vapor and shepherding the wind. And that makes leadership often a a painful and difficult burden to carry. That word vapor, uh, that's really a key word, perhaps the key word in the book of Ecclesiastes. Translations sometimes render the word as vanity, vanity. Uh, Some even say meaninglessness. Uh, Those are really not very good translations. The word, it's interesting because every other place it shows up in Scripture, pretty much, it's translated as vapor. And I think that's the best way to translate it here. It's vapor. What is Solomon saying? You know, Solomon's refrain in this book is, vapor, vapor, all is vapor, Okay, Solomon is not saying everything is pointless or meaningless. He's not a cynic any more than he's a hedonist. You know, some people think, oh, Ecclesiastes, it sounds so cynical or it sounds so hedonistic. Those are wrong ways to read the book. And when he says that everything is vapor, he's getting at something very particular. What he's saying is this. Everything we do in this life, everything we do under the sun is temporary. It is fleeting. Nothing seems to last. Nothing seems solid or stable. It seems like anything we build is just like building a sandcastle on the beach and the tide's going to wash in and wash it away. And it seems like everything we build, it, it, it's like a mist or a vapor. It evaporates like the mist in the morning on a summer day. It slips away from us. It slips through our fingers. Just when we think we've grasped it and got it and, and, and figured things out and built something that's solid enough to last, it's really going to be stable. Something happens and we find really it was just another house of cards. Vapor, vapor, all is vapor. This is really Solomon confessing his weakness, his dependence, his helplessness. Solomon is confessing he has no control. Vapor, vapor, all is vapor. That means we really have no control over our lives. We have no control over other people. Even if you're a leader, no matter how powerful you are, your your control really is only momentary and illusory. Even the most powerful leaders cannot shepherd the wind. That's the other metaphor that Solomon uses here. Even the most powerful leaders can't grasp the wind or shepherd the wind. You can't make the wind do whatever you want. And Solomon says, so there is no profit in it. That is Solomon's way of saying nothing we can do will ever give us any leverage over the creation or the community. There are severe limits to what even the best leader can accomplish. It is all vapor. Everything is subject to decay and corruption. Think about this politically. I mean, this, this, is, this should not be hard to illustrate well, let me give you a couple examples of this. Think about this politically. There were a lot of men in 1776, many of them good men, godly men, who risked their lives fighting to start a new nation. A new nation where they believed liberty and virtue would reign. A new nation where the rule of law and equal opportunity for all would be the ground of society. And these men stayed to their honor, their fortunes, their lives on this new nation. You know, they said we must all hang together or we'll all hang separately. They were taking on the greatest empire in the world. Now if any of those men, our nation's founding fathers as we call them, if any of those men could see America today, in 2021, what we have become, what would they say? Vapor, vapor, all is vapor. America is vapor. The American dream is vapor. They would say, we sacrificed everything for this so that people 250 years later wouldn't even know what bathroom to use. That's not the kind of liberty Patrick Henry was talking about when he said, give me liberty or give me death. They would say, we sacrificed everything for this. A government that now has 2 million employees, many of them using their position to gain all kinds of wealth for themselves at taxpayer expense or in other unsavory ways, this government that's got more three-letter agencies and bureaucracies than you can count, they'd say, that's not what we risked everything to create. But America took on a life of its own, very different than those its founders envisioned. If they could see America today, they would say, vapor, vapor, America is vapor. The great work of those wise men has been left to fools. Or think about the work of Martin Luther in the Reformation, the great reformer. We know Martin Luther is the one who sparked the Reformation with his rediscovery of Paul's gospel. Martin Luther was a very wise man, recovered the doctrine of justification, Uh, the priesthood of all believers, uh, a wonderful theologian in so many ways. He was so influential, a whole branch of the church came to bear his name. He didn't necessarily want that, but that's what happened historically because he was so important. A whole branch of the church came to bear his name, Lutheranism. But what is Lutheranism today? What is it known for? What does it stand for? Now, yes, there are many, many faithful Lutherans, uh, mostly concentrated in smaller Lutheran denominations. Certainly that's the case. But the largest Lutheran denominations in America and elsewhere in the world trash everything Luther stood for, everything he gave himself to accomplish. They are theologically and culturally liberal They have trashed Luther's work, Luther's legacy. Luther's legacy has been left largely to fools who have dishonored his name. And if Martin Luther could see it today, what would he say? Vapor, vapor, all is vapor. It's all vapor. Your wisdom, no matter how great your wisdom is, it gives you no leverage over the future. Now, you don't have to go across generations in order to see this. In Solomon's own day, he could see the struggles of shepherding the nation. He knew even in his own day, he was trying to shepherd the wind. Here he is, the most powerful king Israel's ever had or ever would have. And he's able to accomplish this great building project of the temple. But even then, he knows he's doing nothing more than shepherding the wind. However solid his works appeared, he knew they're vaporous. Solomon had all these people at his command, but he still didn't have control. He had all these people at his command. If he said jump, they would say, how high? If he said sing, they would say, what to? He's got all these people at his command, but he still doesn't have control. He could not control the people of Israel. He was their shepherd, but shepherding them was like shepherding the wind. So it always is. Seeking to shepherd people is like shepherding the wind. People in the nature of the case are generally unmanageable and ungovernable most of the time. They're unshepherdable, we might say. You know, we like to joke about herding cats when somebody's got an impossible task. We say it's like herding cats. Okay, well, cats have nothing on people, okay? Uh, People are very hard to herd, very hard to shepherd. It's never easy. Anyone who has tried to organize and, and lead a group of people for any purpose can testify to this. In fact, I would guess on a small scale, Most of you, just about all of you and your families, experienced a taste of this this morning. You probably experienced something of the vaporous nature of leadership in trying to get your family out the door to church this morning. You dads probably know what Solomon is talking about. Organizing, overseeing, managing, leading, and shepherding any kind of community is always fraught with great difficulty. It is vapor and shepherding the wind. And the sooner any leader finds that out about leadership, the true nature of leadership, the better off he will be. Getting a family out the door to church, getting a team of employees to complete a project on time, uh, getting faculty members to all cooperate in a school, Getting a church, a congregation to all get along, to live in peace, to work together on the mission God has entrusted to the body. All of these things are vaporous and shepherding the wind. There are always so many things that can go wrong. It's shepherding the wind. Rulers can no more control their people than we can control the way the wind blows. Wisdom is a great blessing. Proverbs shows us that. Ecclesiastes shows us that too. Wisdom is a great virtue. It is a royal virtue. Every leader, if he's going to amount to anything, every leader must have wisdom. Larson, David, and Jason, you have been ordained as ruling elders today because you are recognized as men possessing wisdom. Wisdom manifested in your life. Wisdom to live and rule well. But remember what Solomon says here. Wisdom has its limits. And every leader must know his limitations. Every leader must know the, the limits of wisdom. Or to put it in the words of Gandalf, an wise man, even the wise cannot see all ends. In Ecclesiastes 2, Solomon recognizes the limits of wisdom. Indeed, Solomon's wisdom consists largely in knowing what he cannot do What he cannot accomplish, he knows the limits of his authority, the limits of his power, the limits of his control. And Solomon knows shepherding people is like shepherding the wind. You know, there's an old saying, heavy is the head that wears the crown. That saying is true. And this is one of the reasons it's true, because this is the true nature of leadership. You know, we live in a very, a very egalitarian age where people are continually uh, rebelling and pushing back against leadership, even good leaders, even legitimate leaders. That sort of characterizes our culture. We live in a very egalitarian age. One reason people don't want to be under authority today is because we have tended to over-glamorize positions of leadership, focusing only on the benefits and not on the burdens. And so people think, oh, it'd be so great to be a leader, to have that power, to have that command, to have that control. It'd be so great to be in a position of leadership. And so women who are influenced by feminism especially, covet the man's position as head of the family. This is the curse of Genesis 3.16, at least in part. Uh, Women will covet the man's position as head of the family, thinking, oh, what a great benefit that would be to be in charge but overlooking the fact that actually taking responsibility for a family is a heavy burden. And leading a family, as any faithful Christian patriarch will tell you, is a pain in the neck a lot of the time. Congregation members will sometimes push back against the session thinking, oh, the elders, they don't know better than I know. But the elders, they get to make all the important decisions in the church. Overlooking the fact a lot of those decisions are absolutely agonizing for those who make them say church discipline church discipline decisions are rarely easy there are many decisions a session may make that impact the whole church that are incredibly complicated and you may think your session has made a big mistake But the elders may be bearing burdens that you can't see. They may be privy to information that you don't have and can't have. And I would say it's wisest on your part as a member of the church to give your session the benefit of the doubt. Not because they're infallible, they're not, they can and will make mistakes, but because they're faithful. And you've seen that faithfulness in their lives. Because of these limitations on what information leaders can share, leaders often suffer the fate of being misunderstood. It just comes with the territory. It's part of it. When when Larson and David and Jason got ordained today, that's part of the burden they took on, is the burden of potentially being misunderstood by the people they love and care for so much. In Shakespeare's play, Henry V, as the king is making his night rounds, he wonders aloud referring to his coronation, what art thou, idol ceremony? And there may come a a time when Larson, Jason, and David, making their night rounds, wonder, what was that ceremony, that ordination ceremony, really all about? See, in that play, Henry V, his coronation gave him the office of king. It bestowed upon him the office of king. But it did not guarantee he would be a good king. It did not guarantee that his subjects would follow him the one thing his coronation did guarantee him is that he would bear the burdens of his people. And so it is with your ordination, Larson, David, and Jason. The one thing your ordination ceremony guarantees you is a lot of sleepless nights. That's something Solomon makes reference to in this passage uh, in speaking of the limits of wisdom. So given all of this, you might wonder, Given what Solomon says here about leadership, you might wonder, why would anyone want this job? Why would any sane person want this kind of burden in any kind of leadership role? Why would anybody want this job? I well, want to paraphrase Aristotle, uh, every great leader has at least a touch of madness. Uh, George Bernard Shaw put it this way, he said, all progress, we could say really all leadership, depends on the unreasonable man. Leadership is not easy. It's not for the thin-skinned. It's always easier to criticize the leader than to become a leader yourself. It's always easier to criticize the fighter than to join the fight yourself. Why is leadership so hard? Because leadership, like everything else in this life, everything else in our world, is vapor. Leaders are frail. They are fallible. Whatever wisdom they have, however wonderful that wisdom is, it's still limited. Their power is limited. Every leader will eventually disappoint or frustrate those he leads. You know, they say either die a hero or live long enough to become the villain. Well, that's true of leadership. You know, the thing is the thing about leadership is you have to be willing to be the bad guy in somebody else's story, or you can't lead. You've got to be willing to be the bad guy in somebody else's story because eventually you will be. That just comes with the territory. Winston Churchill reflecting on leadership. Uh, one said, having enemies is good. Having enemies is a good sign because it means you've stood for something at some time in your life. And I think Churchill is on to something. The reality is you cannot not do anything worth doing in a fallen world without encountering opposition. And that is true inside the church just as it's true outside the church. You cannot do anything worth doing in a fallen world without encountering obstacles and opposition. The leader has no ultimate control. Leadership is vaporous. It is shepherding the wind. Solomon tells us this. But I said all of this to this point. This is not Solomon's ultimate conclusion. We could say this is Solomon's penultimate conclusion. His final conclusion in this section of Ecclesiastes comes in verses 24 to 26. And it's filled with good news. See, if all you look at is what we've seen so far, it'd be easy to become a, a pessimist, not just, about, not just about leadership, but about life. You know, if you stop at verse 23, uh, with, with Solomon uh, confessing that even his best efforts at being a wise shepherd to the people are vaporous. But look at what he says in the final verses of this chapter. Here, Solomon gives us hope. Here he confesses his own hope. But it's not hope in his own wisdom or his own leadership abilities. It's not hope in some kind of power he has to control people or outcomes or the future. No, Solomon has hope precisely because he knows that he is not in control. But he knows he's not supposed to be in control. But he knows there is one who is in control. There is one who can shepherd the wind. The good shepherd, the true king, the Lord, our shepherd. In fact, Psalm 18 describes the Lord as the one who rides on the wings of the wind. He rides on the wings of the wind, steering the winds, shepherding the winds, however he wants them to blow. He is the good shepherd, the true shepherd of the sheep. He is the true shepherd of the wind. God can shepherd the wind. And that's our hope. All is vapor for us, it's not for God. It's all shepherding the wind for us. We can't grab hold of it and make it do what we want, not so for God. See, for Solomon, leadership like all of life is by faith. Leadership like all of life is by faith. We trust the Lord. And as we trust the Lord, we can reach the same conclusion Solomon does here. What's his conclusion? There's nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and to find enjoyment in his work, even the work of leadership. Solomon says, this too is from the hand of the Lord. How can Solomon tack on this conclusion, this seemingly hopeful conclusion, to what seems to have been such a pessimistic passage? Well, understand, here Solomon is talking about I would say certainly our everyday meals. That's got to be part of it. But he's especially talking about Israel's sacrificial feasts. For us, it would be the sacramental meal of the Lord's Supper. At the Lord's Supper, we come together and we confess our utter dependence upon God for life in this world, for eternal life. We confess our utter dependence upon God for everything and we give God thanks. And in giving God thanks, in performing Eucharist, and giving God thanks, we really unlock the key to enjoyment of this vaporous life. At the Lord's table, we eat and drink and rejoice. Neither leaders nor followers, neither elders nor members in the church should ever despair. No, we are not in control. Elders aren't in control of the church. You're not in control of your own life. We are not in control, but we don't need to be. Because we have communion with the one who is in control. Not being in control produces anxiety and despair only if we think we should be in control. But if you recognize you're not in control and don't need to be in control, if you can rest content with God being in control, if you can recognize it's all in God's hands, then you can rejoice when you relinquish control to the Lord and trust Him, and recognize that He orchestrates all of history, that He shepherds the wind of history, and He shepherds the wind of our lives, and that everything is unfolding according to His plan, then you can live a life of joy and peace. Then you can eat and drink and be satisfied, because you know the Lord has set a table for you. The Lord has set a table for you even in the midst of His enemies. See, God has constructed the world in such a way that we must live by faith and we must lead by faith. There's no other alternative because he's God and we're not. And when we vie for control and try to grasp the wind, we always end up frustrated. God has set up the world as a trap for control freaks. The world's a trap for control freaks because every time you think you've grabbed hold and got control of something in your life, you realize you really don't. God has built the world in such a way that we can never fully control it or grasp it or understand it, no matter what position of leadership or power we have. But Solomon here shows us the way of wisdom. When we trust God, and trusting God here is just a way of relinquishing control, recognizing that God is God and we are not. When we trust God, He is pleased with us. And as Solomon says in verse 26, The one who pleases God is given wisdom, knowledge, and joy. doesn't say anything about being given control. We're not given control. Those who trust God are not given control, but we are given wisdom. We're given the wisdom we need, and we are given the joy we crave. And so we can rest in God knowing he is the shepherd of Israel, his people. He is the one who shepherds the wind. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you are sovereign, that you command and control all things. We thank you that you are the all-wise one. We thank you that you are a good and gracious and loving God. Father, we pray that we would please you by putting our trust in you, that as we trust in you, that you would give us this wisdom, knowledge, and joy, that we would know your peace, that we would stop trying to seize control for ourselves, but would rest content knowing that you are in control, that you are the sovereign Lord over heaven and earth. We cannot shepherd the wind, but you can. And so we put our trust and our hope in you. This we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.